time, said Pericles, is the wisest counselor of all. And if that was true of the ancient Greeks, it's all the more so for the Jews, past, present, and future. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. The Tenth of Tavit, a people under siege. You know, the Hebrew calendar is a fantastic storehouse of spiritual energy. It's more than just a bunch of dates that's come down to us through time. It's the way in which we've learned as a people to tap the divine will, which is woven into the fabric of time itself. So as part of the Jewish Heroism Project, what I want to do is start to give some heroic thoughts that are inspired by where we find ourselves in the calendar. And by the way, now is the time to give me your feedback. Rob Mike Foyer gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Rob Mike Foyer. Go to the Jewish Heroism website, jewishheroism.com. Not only can you reach me there, but you'll see a button that'll allow you to give a little bit of donation. Tax-free in America right now. Help me make this project happen. But most importantly, give me your feedback, because I'm at the stage where your comments won't just inspire me. They might actually change what lies ahead. So for now, oddly enough, the first day that we're going to engage is the 10th of Tavit, which is a public fast day that many people, I imagine, either don't observe or perhaps aren't even aware exists. And it commemorates many things, but for today, I want to focus on the role it plays in the sequence leading up to our commemoration of the destruction of the temple. Because it says in the book of Ezekiel, 24th chapter, if you want to look it up, in the ninth year, on the tenth day of the tenth month, the word of the Lord came to me, O mortal man, Record this date, this exact day, for this very day, the king of Babel has laid siege to Jerusalem. This is a day which marks not the destruction, not the breaking of the walls in which the Babylonians and then after them the Romans rushed through, but it's the day on which the siege began around Jerusalem almost 2,600 years ago. And the question that comes to mind is, why are we marking the beginning of this siege as a specific day? Now, you heard it. Right, record this date, this exact day, for this very day. In the ears of the prophet, meaning in the mind of God, so to speak, this is obviously quite important. And you need to know, in order to appreciate the profundity of the question, that it's a siege which lasted almost three years. What is it we're meant to learn, and what is it that we're mourning by the beginning of the siege on the 10th of Tavit? Well, first order answer is you can learn an awful lot about yourself or the people around you through what we do when we come face-to-face with the inevitable. I mean, imagine looking out the windows of Jerusalem, so to speak, at the armies of Babel for three whole years. And not just looking at the army surrounding the city, but hearing Jeremiah, the prophet of the destruction, Yechezkel's companion who was left behind in the city, saying things like, don't listen to the false prophets, nor your sorcerers that tell you not to serve the king of Babel. But the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, those why let remain still in their own land, says the Lord, they shall till it and dwell therein. I mean, Jeremiah was deemed to be a traitor by the king and probably a heretic, if not just a downright madman by most of the people, because what he was saying is that what you see out there is the inevitable future. And you can either accept it or you can be destroyed. And this is a very important message for us all. Because when we look at our own minds, we have to accept the fact that most of us, when faced with the impossible and the unacceptable, will choose the impossible every time. Because you see, the impossible just means kind of hiding from reality. 
But accepting the unacceptable means reconsidering all my core beliefs, perhaps even the foundations on which I've built my life. For instance, there are many people today who look out and see the wall of hatred surrounding Israel. And they say, listen, these people really just want peace. Now, what could be a better example of this choosing the impossible over the unacceptable than the fact that the two-state solution is still being lauded right now as we're fighting a war as the best possible post-war political horizon, right? Because why? Because to say otherwise is to accept the unacceptable. It's to bring into question all the ideas that there's a set of common interests that really we all can get along, etc., etc. Never forget that oh-so-important quote, which is attributed to Einstein, but apparently was not said by him, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The way I say that is faced with the impossible and the unacceptable, most people will choose the impossible. Because when the Jews looked out at that siege, they didn't say, wow, we need to reconsider the nature of our relationship with God. We need to think about our mission and how it's gone off the rails and why the king of Babylon has been given rule over us. We need to accept that fact and move forward in light of its reality. No, no, no. Instead, they wanted to believe that he would just go away. And of course, when we look around in the world today, it's not just the Jewish state which is under siege, but actually the Jews in general. You may have noticed this in the media or perhaps, God forbid, in your own life. I mean, the rising wave of blatant anti-Semitism doesn't even need to be described. Even if you stay off social media, you can't avoid the fact that there's a way in which Jew hate has been normalized that most people thought could never happen again post-Holocaust. Look around at that wall surrounding us and see it for what it is. Look at the fact that only Israel of all the states in the world is expected to hobble its war according to what I would call false or at least aspirational moral concerns. Look at the elements of the human rights industry born in the late 40s out of the world's horror at what had been done to us under the Nazis who have become the very leading cheerleaders for rapists, torturers, and kidnappers. Now, one could choose the impossible. You could say anti-Semitism, it's not actually happening. It's all media hype. It's overblown. In fact, claims of anti-Semitism are just a way of weaponizing our identity to shut down legitimate criticism, right? Or you could go the other route. No, no, it's true there is Jew hate, but it's actually all Israel's fault. If it weren't for the existence of the state of Israel, or at least for its behavior, or even better, if it weren't for the Bibi Netanyahu government, ah, none of this would be happening. And yeah, the genocidal language of the street protests calling for clearing the Jews out between the river and the sea may be uncomfortable, but the reality is they're just voicing their legitimate grievance in their own cultural manner. Now listen, I got news for the Jews. You can erase your roots in the land. You can deny the essentials of our Torah and our faith. You can straighten your hair and dye your skin and try to walk right, but you will always be a Jew. If our history teaches nothing, it teaches that. You can pretend that's not true, but that's accepting the impossible rather than facing the unacceptable. Now, if you're willing to see the impossible for what it is, you're left with that need to face the unacceptable. And on the 10th of David, 2,600 years ago, that was the reality that God had decided on our defeat, which is important to remember. You know, there's a falsehood of faith, I think, that has risen up with the Zionist project, something which I'm quite committed to. But that falsehood of faith is the idea that what faith is, what Amuna means, is that no matter God, 
matter what, God is with us. The reality is real faith is no matter what, we're with God. And that's what Jeremiah was telling the people there in the lead up from the 10th of Tevet through the 9th of Av when the temple was finally destroyed. Is that you need to accept the fact that no matter what the political reality, we stick with our mission. And our mission is to connect heaven and earth. No matter what, we're with God. And back then, 2,600 years ago, being surrounded by the siege, at least at first glance, meant that we had already been defeated. And we needed to accept that and adjust our behavior accordingly. Today, looking at the walls surrounding us, be they here in the Jewish state or out there in the Jewish world, it means accepting the fact that to be a Jew is to basically be the oldest war humanity has known. Our insistence on existence is the root of the problem here. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing we could do better or that things don't have to fundamentally change. Trust me when I tell you, I'm on board with changing many things. I'm in deep, and I'd love to hear from you what you think needs to happen. But I want to make this clear. A real transformation for the Jews and the Jewish state will not begin with burying our heads in the sand and choosing the impossible over the unacceptable. And by the by, this is hard for many Zionists as well because Zionism was meant to get rid of anti-Semitism and yet here we are with Israel as the Jew of the international community surrounded once again by visceral hate. So we fast on the 10th of Tevet in mourning over our failure to accept the reality and our choice to embrace the impossible. There was a reality already surrounding us, a siege for three years which only really had one end. And just imagine what it might have been had be willing to see and accept, to listen to Jeremiah, in that case, to open the gates to our enemies and accept that God had passed judgment. I'm not quite sure what the parallel is today, but it's an important question. What does acceptance of the reality that we face right now actually mean? As a people as a whole, it's a willingness to fight. As individuals, where do I belong? Is my place in America, in France, in England? Should I go home to Israel? These are questions that we have to consider because once you move away from the un- impossible and begin to consider the unacceptable, well, then you have to start to take apart the foundations on which you built the sense of what was acceptable and what was not. Now, one more piece here before I end this rant. Let's call this this heroic thought because there's an important quality which paves the way for heroic action. Remember, to be a hero is Monsieur nefesh l'ma'an tov to go beyond, to grow beyond our limited sense of self for the sake of the goodness of creation. And in order to do that, one of the skills we need to master is the ability to read the writing on the wall. If you don't know the story, go back to the book of Daniel, one of the earlier Jewish heroes, and read the original writing on the wall. Right there in the fifth chapter, you'll find that the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who, of course, did eventually complete his siege and destroy the temple, was feasting, according to our sages, drinking wine and eating unkosher meats off of the very vessels which were used to serve God in that holy place, when suddenly a hand appeared on the wall, and it wrote without any arm, Mene, mene, tekel ufarsin. Right? God has numbered the days of your kingdom, weighed it in the balance, and found it wanting, and divided it amongst your enemies. Now in the scene, nobody could read what the hand had written, until Daniel came along and read the writing on the wall. And he gets the drama of having coined the original term, but it's important to note that Daniel never reaped any direct rewards. Read the story, he actually rejected them. Nonetheless, 
he gave to us this notion that one of the definitions of wisdom, certainly a necessary quality in any heroic action, is the ability to see that which already is written on the wall. Let me give you a historical example that might help demonstrate the power which becomes available when you accept and read what is written on the wall. And that's Herod. King Herod, right, last king of the Judean state in the second temple period. There's a whole question whether Herod would be considered a Jewish hero. I don't want to dive into it right now, but certainly we can say that Herod built the strongest Jewish state the world would see until the rise of the modern state of Israel. And Herod read the writing on the wall in a way in which none of his political opponents were willing or able to do. His simple understanding was that Rome is here to stay. The Hasmoneans that opposed him politically, the sages that struggled against him spiritually and religiously, the zealots who tried to cut his throat, all believed that Rome was a passing phenomenon. But Herod knew that Rome was there to stay. And that very acceptance of a reality which couldn't be changed allowed him to craft a policy and a posture which created an incredibly powerful state of Judea at a critical time in the Roman Empire. You know, aside from history, I want to give um, a more positive face for the possibility of what it means to read the writing on the wall, to see the walls surrounding us and to use them as a spur to action. And in order to do so, I want to say a little bit about my grandfather. You know, the 10th of Tavit is, in addition to being a mourning over the siege around Jerusalem, also here in Israel known as Yom Kaddish Klali. It's the day on which we say the prayer of mourning for all those killed in the Holocaust whose date of death is unknown and perhaps who had no surviving family. My grandfather, thank God, did not have to suffer the visceral experience of the Holocaust because alone amongst his 11 siblings, he escaped Europe in 1937. And you know, I've often wondered, I've often felt that if I could ever ask a question to any historical personage, let's say non-famous historical personage, I'd like to ask my grandfather a simple question. What was it that made you act? There you were in 1937. You were apprenticed in Belgium to learn a trade in order to help feed your family, you and your cousin. And you looked around and you said, you know what? It's over. There is no future for the Jewish people, or at least for this Jew, here in Europe. And he snuck onto a ship, hid in the boiler room, at a transatlantic crossing until his family in New York City was able to smuggle him off when the captain discovered them on the other side of the ocean. And my question is, what made him take the leap? All around him, the Jews were saying, yeah, listen, it's bad, but it's been worse. And if it gets worse, it'll get better as well. And they stayed. And we know how the story ended. He saw the writing on the wall. But he didn't just accept it as a, a fatalistic reality an inevitable signal of destruction. Reading the writing on the wall can also be a spur to possible action because, of course, it's important to know something special about the tenth of David. See, this fast isn't forever because seeing the siege, accepting the reality of the unacceptable doesn't just freeze us in a fatalistic stance. It can become the keystone to redemption because not only does Ezekiel record the first appearance of this day. But much later, at the beginning of the construction of the second temple, Zechariah also tells us something about the fast. It's written there, Komar Hashem Tavod, thus 
says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month, the tenth month is David, shall become occasions for joy and gladness, happy festivals for the house of Judah, but ha'emet v'hashalom ehavu, but you must love truth and peace. What's the context? The people had come to Zechariah once the second temple was rebuilt, and they said, listen, we've been fasting for the destruction of the first temple for 70 years. Should we keep it up now that the second is built? It's a worthwhile exploration. Go check out the eighth chapter, all the way through the 11th, if I'm not mistaken, to see the full story. But for now, know this. The answer that God gave through the prophet is that we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make when we look at the world. We can see the writing on the wall as simply telling us the inevitable. When we get to the 10th of Tevet, we can tap the wisdom of our past suffering, which allows us to see the world through, let's say, cold, analytical eyes, to know it for what it is, to discard our attachment to the impossible, to accept the unacceptable, reorder our understanding of the world, and take defensive action. And when I say that, I say it with all seriousness, this is part of the call of the hour. But a hero never takes history as a given. The heroic call is one to take agency to change the future. And when Zechariah says that this fast will someday be a feast, it will actually be a source of joy, what he's telling us is that we actually have the power when looking at the unacceptable to take action to change it. You know, one of my favorite literary quotes of all time comes from you may have guessed it, The Lord of the Rings. And there, early in the first book of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien being the great hero of English literature in my pantheon, there at the very beginning, Frodo is having a conversation with the wizard Gandalf. And he says, I wish it need not happen in my time. And if you don't know the context, just know bad things are coming. And Frodo knows he's going to be in the middle of it. He says, I wish it need not happen in my time. How many of us are looking at the world today? and saying, I wish this need not happen in my time. The hate, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty. Well, so do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Because I think the real message of the Tenth of Tevet isn't just to read the writing on the wall, to discard our attachment to the impossible, accept the unacceptable, reorient to a world which is gradually becoming, once again, a place of siege. But it's also to take the agency to transform the Tenth of Taviet from the memory of mourning to a true celebration of redemption. And I want to bless us all to take that power in our lives, to look around at the world we see, and to know that it's not just calling us to be cautious and know the siege which surround us, it's calling us to heroic action, to go beyond, to grow beyond a limited sense of self, to make the goodness of creation flourish. So ask yourself today, what can you do in response to the walls you see, not just to defend yourself, to break through them to a better future? Just want to thank some folks before I go. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean mountains. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project.